Hi everybody, Liam here. Just a few quick notes before we start the show. First of all, this episode is intended to be really immersive. And what I mean by that is that there's almost no narration. It's kind of an audio collage of about 30 different people sharing their memories of the Oakland Army base. So if you want to get the full experience and you live in the Bay Area, I highly recommend going down to the port to listen to this episode. I'm actually here right now, recording this, surrounded by giant cranes on one side, but with wide open views of the bay on the other. Most of the old army base is private property, so not very accessible, but there's a really great park that's usually pretty empty right next to where the army base used to be. It's called Middle Harbor Shoreline Park. Again, that's where I'm at. And uh, there's wide sidewalks and trails and even a little beach if you want to walk around and listen to the episode on headphones. Or if walking with headphones isn't your thing, there's a parking lot at the end of the park. If you just want to sit in your car and enjoy a spectacular view of the water and the giant container ships and the San Francisco skyline. Although if you're more of a bike person, there is a path that goes through the former base site along Maritime Street, and then it parallels Burma Road and connects the Bay Trail. Uh, A lot of people have never been to this part of far west Oakland because it's so industrial. There's no residential, pretty much no retail development in this whole massive zone. So please take this podcast as an opportunity to go visit one of the most unique parts of the East Bay. Social distancing should not be a problem. Most of the folks you see out here are driving semi-trucks. Oh, and uh, one more thing. There's a tiny bit of static on a few of the clips you're about to hear, especially a couple at the very beginning. But don't worry, most of the audio is pretty clean. And uh, all of the interviews uh, for this show were recorded between 2007 and 2008 by the good folks at UC Berkeley's Oral History Center. And I'll be sharing some more information about that later. Special shout out to Martin Meeker and David Dunham, who gave me access to all these incredible tapes. But for now, all you need to know is that the base shut down about 20 years ago. And the people you're going to hear from were connected with it in all kinds of ways. Some were dock workers, some were military. There are a couple of civilian employees, like secretaries and administrative folks in the mix a few people from West Oakland neighborhood organizations, and uh, yeah, you get it. I'll give everyone's name at the end of the episode and in the show notes. Oh, and if you do go down to Middle Harbor Shoreline Park to listen to this, look out for the geese. They're not very friendly, and they uh, poop everywhere. Okay, here we go. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. I don't care who you are, the waterfront will definitely change you. You know, you can come on the waterfront as a preacher and end up being anything but that. And on the other hand, you could be the biggest drunk in the world and come on the waterfront and end up a preacher. That's just the nature of the job. Nobody comes off the waterfront unscathed in terms of their life, the way they look at at the world or the way they look at society. The waterfront changes all of that. It's a culture unto itself where the main headquarters building of the port is now. The big building with the parking lot in front, uh, as nearly as I remember, that was all Tideland Marsh. That's since, of course, been filled in. But the uh, Port of Oakland was in the news at the time. They were trying to develop it and improve it. And those first piers were built about that time, uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, I liked to go out on the pier and sit in the sunshine and eat lunch and watch the ships, and that was, uh, that was my recreation. The Oakland Army Base opened eight days after Pearl Harbor, and I'm just sort of wondering 
what you heard about its history and its inception and its role during World yeah. War II and the years after? Uh, the port of embarkation was Fort Mason. Fort Mason was not sufficient to handle the workload for World War II. They figured that out real fast. And that's why they built Oakland Army Base and then moved the headquarters from Fort Mason to Oakland Army Base. Most people in the community only knew Oakland Army Base as an exit right before the Bay Bridge and had no idea what went on at the Army Base. But, you know, we really did play a big role in defense transportation because it was the largest military ocean terminal on the West Coast. So when I was there, we were trying to walk a fine line between getting recognition for the important role that we played for military defense and at the same time keeping a low profile because we really didn't want to be targets for the anti-war movement or anti-military movement. Underneath that pier, you'd see these really large fish. That's when you could eat fish out of the bay. And we would go down there and we'd go fishing. So sneaking into that base, uh, the naval supply underneath the piers and into the army base was, it was an easy, a good place to go fishing that no people were really fishing. So you catch some really good sized fish there. Wow. So we used to go down there and sneak down there and go fishing all the time. Were people ever caught? Oh yeah, but they, when they caught you, they made noise to let you know that they know you're down there and it's like, hey, nobody's supposed to be in here and you better not be in here if I ever catch somebody in here. It's like, yeah, don't see anything. There was a ship that actually um, collided with another ship. And luckily, the ship captain was able to get the ship close enough to the shore where it didn't completely sink. But I saw an aerial photograph of the accident and the containers that contained privately owned vehicles of our military. It looked like somebody threw up pickup sticks, and those were 40-foot containers. And so anyway, our guys would actually have to try to pull these cars out of um, these big containers. Out of these containers. And a lot of those containers had been submerged under the ocean. And so I would tease them. I'd go, hey, you guys, first one who finds a fish, I want to see it. <laughs> and so. I think you might get close to four or 500 ILWU longshore folks working on the base. It, it could possibly be more if there were more than three or four ships. And there was berthing room for seven ships. And there were times when I went there when there were seven ships working. And, and a constant stream of commercial truck drivers bringing cargo to the dock. Typically, you, you, you would probably have over 100 loads of cargo a day on trucks. There were quite a few uh, black women who were uh, supervisors and mm. very smart uh, women uh, who a lot of them would not take any guff from a man. I love to see that. Uh, <laughs> uh, particularly in truck control there was uh, one black lady who was just a darling. But if a truck driver came in there and was giving any of her people any guff or anything like that, I mean she would straighten him out in a heartbeat. You know, a couple of them uh, very capable of of uh, doing physical injury to to you know anybody. They didn't uh, didn't make any difference as a man or not. They knew how to fight. So what I had to do was the itineraries, mm. but these were for the deceased bodies that came back from Vietnam. These were young kids, and every morning we would have to like make the reservations for these bodies. And it was just so sad. I mean, it was like every time I saw a, an escort, there were like about 50 of them at the counter. So that meant a body for each escort. Oh. So it was like, oh, my God, you know, it, it was really depressing. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, this was a job, so I did the job. Most bases are, are like planned communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're self-contained. They have their own police force, their own entertainment. Uh, some have their own schools. Uh, mm -hmm their own chapel, commissary, guest quarters. They had just about everything that uh, any other base would be there. And that kind of takes in that, uh, a lot of the people, you know, and creates kind of a family-like mm -hmm. environment, uh, not only from the people who live there as military members, but to the civilians who work there and are part of the, uh, the military families that are living there. They're part of their life. For the land of the free and the home of the 
Did you have a sense that the East Bay in particular was facing, I don't know if disproportionate is the right word, but pretty significant base closures in the 90s? God, yeah. The whole, the whole San Francisco Bay was wiped out. I think it's 13 closures on the bay. Mare Island, Hamilton, Presidio, uh, Hunter's Point. Now, there's an environmental nightmare, Hunter's Point. Uh, Moffat, Alameda, Oak Knoll, the, the, the supply station, Treasure Island, Oakland Army Base. But yeah, they took a disproportionate hit. I think it was 25% of all the jobs uh, terminated nationwide by base closure, San Francisco Bay. You know, the, the community of West Oakland has been so uh, deprived and now um, pushed out that it, you know, it deserves some resurrection and some historical presence from, from the history of the city of Oakland. And, um, I don't see that that's forthcoming. The base, while it was being built in the 1940s, um, they, they put buildings where they needed them for the military operation. Mm -hmm. When it comes to a commercial and maximizing land, the, a lot of the buildings were in the wrong place. When we looked at it, without a considerable amount of money paid to uh, remediation, upgrading uh, a lot of the buildings, it was cheaper to take them down. It just seems almost unbelievable that that Oakland Army Base no longer exists. As a matter of fact, Building 1, uh, where I worked at Oakland Army Base, the building no longer exists. It was imploded. And uh, when I drive uh, along 880 and look over that way and see just vacant land where Building 1 used to be, it just is almost uh, mind-boggling. But then, of course, there's no military in the Bay Area at all. And then we found out that the land was too really too toxic for people to be living on. Had to need to be cleaned up. But you had this, um, but you had these empty buildings for years that could have been used for housing. Okay, so it was very confusing about the, the highest and best use. Had you ever been on the Army base or at the Personnel Center now, before? I played down there as a kid. That's part of the other piece I didn't tell you. Uh, yeah, we used to go down to the creeks. We explored all the creeks, the Timiskel creeks that, that ran into the bay. And as a kid, my brother and I and the kids in the neighborhood would go out there with jars and catch frogs. And my mother was really upset, but my father said, no, let it, he's learning, let, let him alone. And I'd cover, come home covered with blue mud with these frogs in a jar. Well, I grew up in West Oakland near Defremery Park, and we'd ride our bicycles down to the, where it was to be the Army base. And sometimes a, a Navy ship would come in, we'd talk to the fellows, and they'd give us ice cream. Ah. And then the one day we were coming back, we, all of a sudden there was a lot of sirens and police motorcycles and a motorcade. And their pastor was President Roosevelt. Good heavens. So apparently he was looking the place over to, to determine if it was going to be the Army base. But and at you, that time, didn't Could know. you recognize him? In oh, the yeah. Army I, oh, yeah, no, it was President Roosevelt. I forgot there was about two or three of us. Uh -huh. So it was in the 30s. Mm -hmm. Was it already sort of filled? I mean, I know a lot of that land is filled. Like, no, there was a, we just rode down there, and there was the water, and then the, uh, some, uh, the Navy ship would come in. And, Oakland Army Base originally was mud flats and that sort of yeah. thing. And uh, when they decided to build the base, they needed fill. And the fill came out of Hiller Highlands, not too far from Highway 24. Oh, yeah, 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 I've it's seen that. It's a big canyon yeah. now. The fill came out of there, and it was carried down to Oakland Army Base and put in there. In order to support the piers, they drove a lot of piling. Yeah, this yeah. was probably 1939, 1940 when they built the base. Of course, um, the big disadvantage for San Francisco is that in order to, for rail cars to get there, they had to come up the peninsula 
and through town and around, or else be barged across the bay. So that's why there was so much development of the Port of Oakland to supply the uh, military effort in the Pacific during uh, World War II. The actual movement of all the materials, I say ash and trash, but they, they, they really, they're moving butter, beans, people, and everything else is done in Oakland because that's where they got all of the port, all of the docks. They were shipping stuff from Oakland to all of the Pacific. In fact, the Oakland Army Base shipped more stuff than anybody else on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. In I fact, don't... they supplied the whole damn war. A railroad car would come in with general cargo for, let's say, Guam. Uh, it would be unloaded and put in a warehouse. Now, most of these ships, uh, like a Liberty ship, would hold from 10,000 to 15,000 tons of cargo. So you would assemble the cargo, and after you had the 10,000 tons, you would get a ship, and then you'd load the ship with that cargo. Each piece of cargo that came into that pier had a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it had the name of the ship, it had the name of the port, that it was going to go to. It had the weight in the cube of the cargo. And that piece of paper would go into one of those offices, and that would all get put together on a pre-plan for that vessel. One of the more interesting events while I was there, we shipped $90 million to Okinawa when they converted to the greenbacks, and they brought 96 boxes of currency into one of my warehouses uh, by Loomis Truck. Mm -hmm. uh, they also brought in pallets of bags of coins, uh, no pennies, but nickels, dimes, and quarters. But uh, they would have, as I remember it, 40 bags uh, in a pyramid on a pallet, and they'd uh, use a forklift to move them uh, out of the truck and into the Connex boxer. They had extra bags there, and they had two men assigned that if bags broke, they had to repack the coins. Uh, we uh, escorted uh, the low boys that they loaded them on to take them to the ship, and then they swung them aboard into the uh, hold. And in the hold, uh, they had welded the door shut, but they welded them with a bar to each other. They turned the doors towards each other and then welded them. Interestingly enough, six weeks later, when the ship came back with a load of troops, I was down at the port uh, watching the offloading operation, and the captain came down and he recognized me and he said, aren't you the provost marshal? And I said, yes. He said, what the hell did you ship to Okinawa? Oh, they didn't know what it was. No, they were in the dark. It was a top secret operation. Oh, yeah, I was wondering if you... And uh, he said, I was greeted by about 20 troops with Thompson submachine guns. He said, I never saw so much artillery. <laughs> What in the devil was it? And I said, $60 million? I said, don't you remember reading uh, that they converted to uh, greenbacks in Okinawa? And he said, yeah, I saw that. I wondered how they got them. <laughs> and he said, so I took them over there. And I said, yeah. Did I mention that I went AWOL from Oakland Army Base back in 63? Yeah. When I was waiting for the ship, they had us in the barracks there, and they said, okay, you know, the ship leaves tomorrow or the next day. You're all confined. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is dumb. I got nothing to do. I was young, adventurous. So I changed my clothes, walked out the gate, went over to San Francisco, and I saw Alcatraz, and I rode a trolley car, uh, cable car, and I got something to eat, and I got some books to read on the ship. And come evening, I went back and went in. Nobody missed me. Yeah. You know what, now I was, I was AWOL all day, I'll, I'll admit it. Can't do anything to me about it now. Uh, I know it's been, uh, the base has been described in other uh, materials as, as being uh, a community within itself. 
And uh, it really was. Military bases are somewhat like that anyway. Oakland Army Base, being in a metropolitan area, had a, a community of military people. And then, of course, the civilians who came to work there every day belonged to the outside community. We used to go over there, and when the soldiers would get through eating, we'd go through the chow line. They'd let us go through the chow line. How come? I don't know. I have you were no kids? idea. Cute little kids? I guess. <laughs> Did your mom do that too? No, just the kids. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All the kids from around the West Oakland neighborhood, and particularly us in the projects, because we all used to travel in, in, in a little pack. You know, we, we sort of stuck together because we were isolated from the larger projects. <clears throat> we used to go over there and eat. That's great. And play because they had a large storage area out there uh, across the street from the 16th Street Railway Station. And they used to have the, uh, the nets, the rope nets that they used to come over the side of the ship. They had those things bundled up out there. They had um, all kinds of things that a child would fi- find yeah. useful in play. And how about uh, even uh, friends you went to high school with? Did people get jobs on the base? On the base. Uh, that was the Naval Supply, Naval Air, and the Oakland Army Base were points of entry to, let's say, the job market or the working market for many, many people that came out of high school, uh, that would come out of high school, that not only McClymans, um, but, you know, Tech for Fremont, Oakland High. You know, it was, it was a place that you went. That's where you got, literally, you would get your first kind of a job. Like, like what kind of jobs? Do you, people you knew got what? Well, you worked down there. You could be either a, a materials handler down there. You could be a, a driver if you really got that far, or you would drive trucks for them. So did you do much socializing on base? Oh, too much. <laughs> a lot, because um, the military there, we kind of hooked up. You know, we were all friends, you know. So um, I used to go to the dances with them. They'd invite me to go to Treasure Island and Naval Air Station, Alameda, the Enlisted Men's Club there. So I was like a social butterfly. (laughs) The ships, when they were tied up, had a crewman going on leave. And one of our more common events for them to come back to the ship inebriated and miss the gangplank and go in the water. Oh, no! <laughs> and unfortunately, many of them didn't survive. Oh, really? Well, they'd either hit the a piling, the ship, or the uh, pier. Now, did this happen frequently? As you describe and, it, it seems so. Uh, it wasn't unusual. Mm-hmm. Were these civilian? Yes. From, they from the, by usually the ship, the ship crew type. Mm-hmm. Did you do anything to try to prevent that? Well, there wasn't anything you could do. They they had their gangplank. Mm -hmm. They just had to get to it and find it and go up it. But Mm -hmm. it happened too often. What other kinds of um, transgressions did you have to deal with? Well, from assaults Mm -hmm. to more serious things like uh, bigamy. That was a very common one. Bigamy? Yes. Uh, soldiers had a, a bad habit of taking a second wife and going through the ceremony. And that was part of the responsibility of the well, army to... if that was picked up somewhere along the line, and frequently it was because the second wife would file for dependency allowance, uh, and somebody would get back and... Here'd come a letter. We have this information that he has a wife so-and-so. Here's a copy of the marriage certificate. Whatever you want to do about it, and you'd sign it to an investigator. Mm-hmm. And usually the guy would say, yeah, I did it. She wouldn't sleep with me unless I married her, so I married her. Oh, and I got mugged once in the area because I was going early in the morning to get a overtime. Uh-huh. And because the army base and the naval supply are in a bad location, uh, they they got me. Uh, so I went to work bloody and. Oh no! So I was very dedicated to to get my overtime, but I I, I didn't get it that day. 
there's a little tunnel that goes goes to the base. Mm -hmm. And so uh, anyway, my boss said, you're, you're not going to work now in a, uh, looking like that. West Oakland had its issues back in the early days. Um, How so? There were some places that had been tagged red light areas. Mm. There was a, you know, prostitution, I guess, fairly rampant in some parts of West Oakland. In that part that was nearest to the base. That said, you had some very fine people who may have lived in those communities. Mm -hmm. What did it mean for it to be a tagged red light? Did that mean that it was um, off limits or was it just? It generally meant, yeah, these are places not only of so-called ill repute, but maybe have had history of problems for, for GIs. Either fights broke out there or because prostitution was interesting. It was like, you know, they didn't want you around those places per se, and yet they knew a lot of the, the personnel would frequent those places. And those places did exist, you know, at the Army base, at the Naval Air Station. And they were always not far off the installation. You know, mm -hmm. it was like right down the street you'll find that. Well, since um, I was uh, showbiz oriented, I thought that it would be fun to uh, put on a, a talent show once a year. We would advertise for uh, people with talent to be in the show, and we had people with talent in the show, and we had uh, people with no talent in the show. <laughs> but it was uh, great fun uh, putting it on. and. I would always have uh, three military people doing the Andrew Sisters Boogie Boogie Bugle Boy number, which I choreographed for them. And it was uh, always uh, three um, male enlisted people. Uh, every, it was, if it was a new general, I mean, it was really a, a shocker for him. But anyway, that was the, that's one of the main reasons that the people always came to see the show because they wanted to see who the Andrews sisters were going to be this time around. Oakland Army Base and, and Western Area is what's called a, a Purple Command. Or a uh, Joint Command? A Joint Command, but uh, a purple-suited command, meaning you blend the colors of all the Army, Navy, Air, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps, Coast Guard together, and uh, it's staffed uh, with contributions from each of those services. So by organizational structure, the commander was always a, an Army general, and then the Navy commander, or the Navy captain was the deputy commander. And the reason they established the executive staff officer position was because the military turned over quite often every two years at the most, every three years. And so the ESO position was established so that there would be some institutional memory that would stay even though the military rotated in and, and rotated out. I didn't want to go to Oakland. And it was sheer snobbery. You know, people in San Francisco looked down on Oakland. Okay, I confess, I looked down on Oakland. I didn't want to go to Oakland Army Base. The waterfront in and of itself is better than anything they could possibly put on television in the way of comedy. Daily, it was a daily thing. I remember we were loading um, whiskey and we had these uh, steam winches, they, uh, what do they call them? Uh, it'll come to me in a second. They were fast. I mean, fast. You had to have reflexes to, to drive them. And one of the bosses, he got drunk because, of course, when you load whiskey around Longshoremen, they would find a way to get into it. I don't care how many guards they put on it. <laughs> there was always a way. So he got drunk, and he decided he wanted to relieve his winch driver. <laughs> he got they hooked up this pallet of whiskey, <laughs> and he comes over to 
picks it up off the dock and he comes over the hatch. And because of the way the ship is rigged, he comes up and he just goes right over the hatch and throws this pallet of whiskey out in, into the bay. When I was going to junior college at Merritt, okay. yeah, what had happened was we, um, there was a lot of my friends that went to Merritt College as well as I did. And so one day they went to um, the placement office there for jobs mm -hmm. and they were starting to hire a lot of people at Oakland Army Base. Okay. So that's how, when they got jobs, I says, hey, I want one too. <laughs> <laughs> so I headed down to uh, the personnel office there, the placement office there, okay. and that's how I okay. started my life there. Okay. So anyway, when we first started there, it was like a whole new you know, concept for me because I had never really worked in a big office. And yeah. there were a lot of military, yeah. you know, and I'm not used to people because, I mean, you know, other than the schools and stuff, but what I did was I was like a clerk typist. Okay. All I did was type military's names and their addresses and city and state where they lived because these were the guys that were going to overseas to Vietnam. I remember back in 1968, when I went to Vietnam, I actually stopped in at the Oakland Army Base and uh, lived in uh, these huge warehouses. There were thousands and thousands of soldiers there coming in every day and then leaving. Um, and I slept there a night or two uh, on my way to Vietnam. Well, how do you remember the Oakland Army Base and how would you describe it? Um, well, you know, back in those days, uh, you could not miss a combat shipment. And so when we got there, they told us, uh, the, uh, you know, our leaders said, look, one, you don't go off the base. And two, you'd better not miss the bus that's going to take you to the plane because you are in deep trouble. So I was scared to death. I had a family. <laughs> and I wasn't about to leave the installation like some other guys and go to San Francisco and risk getting caught. So I just hung around the installation uh, around the warehouses where there were thousands and thousands of steel cots, uh, you know, guys laying around. Um, so I didn't see very much of the base. I just, I saw the, the warehouse. That's about it, I was scared. Well, what was it like working there in the sense that the union was pretty vocally opposed to the war? Well, we we didn't have too too much trouble we because our responsibility to our country was greater than our opposition to the war. We talked about war and we debated our position and opposition against the war at union meetings, but that had nothing to do with our handling the cargo. Working at the Army base was definitely a, a change because what I saw there is, here's a place that's helping me to pay my bills. So I had no regrets about that. The war effort, I don't like this war is going on. And yet I felt I owed it to those soldiers who were still over there to help them to get all the equipment, supplies that they needed to protect themselves. Hmm. That said, I had to be very careful about voicing that opinion, especially at work. And yet I would. I'd share with different folks, you know, I don't like this war thing. And I did have one supervisor tell me, you just better be careful because you might just, you know, get fired. Was the culture getting more tense there? Well, let me ask you this. Was there security? Were you aware of a kind of... Um... Yeah. You mean like Homeland Security yeah, is today? Or, no. Or concern for any kind of um, sabotage? Uh, no. Okay. No. In those days, we were issued, when we first came on the waterfront, what's called a Coast Guard pass. In other words, the Coast Guard, I guess, had scanned your background and seen that you weren't a threat. Then some guys refused, some of the old-timers, had refused to apply for a, a, a Coast Guard pass 
or because of their uh, past association with uh, the party, that is the Communist Party, were denied Coast Guard passes. Uh, so there was no question about security in that sense, uh, in, in terms of somebody going to blow up a ship. No, uh-uh. How much uh, promotion did you have to do about the war in Vietnam? I mean, after all, Oakland and Berkeley were huge uh, anti-war centers, and there were we, Stop the Draft Week. Uh, we, uh, from, during the Vietnam War, while I was there, first of all, we were not allowed to speak to the media. Public affairs officer is the only one and the deputy that could speak to the media, and everyone on base. All, everybody in our command knew that if someone calls you from the media, you can't say anything. During the time that I was there, we did have demonstrations on Maritime Avenue, which is, uh, we have two gates getting into the base, a back way and a front way. And a lot of our demonstrators would throw themselves on the tracks to try to keep the, the, the little railway that we had from, from going through there. So a lot of times we would go to work really early so that we would miss all the demonstration and we could you know, keep the base functioning. Most of the protesters were really actually downtown. And then uh, one time they had some women that, were, that went down there and they burned their bras and blah, blah, blah. Because you, you gotta remember now we're, we're going into the 70s when they're, they're just beginning the women's lift. Right. So for whatever reason, they would always pick the, uh, the, the recruitment building, which was 1515 Clay Street. So that's where all the activity would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Must have been crazy being in the Bay Area in the late '60s. It was a very exciting time. Well, it was it it was unique to me because because you knew there was a war going on. We you know we loaded a lot of soda pop and beer, sometimes whole ships full of soda pop, beer, and cigarettes. I'm not sure I ever really felt too good about the whole thing. And the reasons for us being there were very, very unclear. You mentioned that the, the soda pop, the beer, and the cigarettes being shipped over brought home to you the idea that something was going on over there. You know, why did those items resonate in a way that the large weapons being shipped over didn't? I don't know. I looked at the I looked at all the beer and I said, well, in order to be there, you have to really probably have to really medicate yourself in order to get through this. I, I I saw the weapons and I knew the bullets and I knew that big shells came out of them, but I saw the nicotine as being a stimulant, and then I saw the beer as being knocking off the edge. Besides everything else, you could get your hands on over there, and I said, wow, this much beer, this must not be too good. Now, how did the work at the Oakland Army Base change really at the end of the Vietnam War? And I imagine it really did take a while to wind down. Well, it, it changed for me because the, the job availability wasn't there anymore. So I was actually spending less time there now and more time at the commercial docks. Although we were still sending a little bit of cargo over Mostly now ships were coming back, and I, I noticed how, how, how high in the water the ships sat when they came back. And you could almost tell what kind of cargo was in them by how high in the water they came in. So you see these ships come back, and they'd be all, all full, of, um, full of vehicles. Um, vehicles that were shot up and flat tires, and sometimes you'd see the, the tire would have this bamboo stake driven into the tire. <laughs> Sabotage. We were real busy building up and, um, you know, unfortunately, the, one of the biggest areas that built up during that time was the mortuary. You know, we had to hire more embalmers and more. That was always sad, but, you know, you get caught up in your job and you're just thinking, you know, doing your job. You're not thinking, you know, how it translates into the, you know, what it actually means, I mean, especially when you're young and you're starting out. So, it didn't make as much of an impact, you know, except when it hit home, like some of the girls, young girls in the office had boyfriends that went there, went to Vietnam and were injured or killed. And then, you know, naturally then you would um, yeah, think about it. Yeah, yeah. 
brought home to mm -hmm. roost. Mm -hmm. Well, what were your first impressions of the ILW when you started working through the union in 1965? Uh, I made more money in three days than I made in a week. So my impression was one that uh, of, of being fulfilled for my work effort. The, the ILW is an interesting place. It has a wonderful, in those days and still today, it got a wonderful teaching method. A lot of those old guys who, who didn't, some didn't read and write well, but they did things experientially. They told you stories and, I mean, they, they were good teachers. They were very, very good teachers, which is what's important on this job because it's dangerous. You know, they had their way of telling you, don't get yourself killed, you know. But they would say like, for example, if you stand, if you keep standing the breast of the load and something happens and you get yourself killed, then I will have to go home and tell my wife her money is short because you got killed. And I don't want to do that. I said, God damn, that's all he think about is telling his wife her check is short, I'm going to be dead. You know? And I remember that story for 40 years. In the, what, late 70s, I think it was, the accident rate started going up. It started going out of sight, as a matter of fact. Even with containerization, you, you would think uh, that was... Even more so with containerization. Because uh, there was a larger scale. Or... Uh, yeah, once it became the predominant way to work. See, what, what containerization did, it isolated the individual longshoremen. In the old days, when you worked with a gang, there was at least four men the eight men to six men that you work with. And you, during the course of the work, there was constant conversation about anything and everything. Containerization took that away. The, the crane driver, he's 118 feet up in the air, so he's not talking to the whole men or the men on deck. Uh, there's no gang boss. Uh, there's a walking boss and his only concern is production. They've got him tied to how many cans can you move in an hour. So he's not interested in conversation with you about what's going on in the world or anything else. I mean, he's trying to get that bonus check at the end of the year, right? So there's no, no cohesion. All of that was taken away. One of the things I had to really be careful of, because there was all kinds of men, they were all different kinds of sizes and shapes and ages, and a lot of them were single, and I was single. So the number one rule for me was never get romantically involved with any of them. Mm -hmm. So that was number one thing. And knowing that I really was living in a fishbowl, and that because I was the first woman doing this position, they were going to be very critical and very watching what I was going to do and how was I was how was I going to react and and um, I knew enough to be real dangerous, but um, I learned pretty fast too. So they respected the fact that I respected them, that I already realized that a lot of them had been doing their jobs for a very long time, and um, my number one priority was safety because right before I came to take that position. There was a man who had, I think about a few weeks before he was going to retire, and he was literally killed by a forklift rolling over him. And that was done at the pier, so it was very devastating. And so I always kept that in mind to make sure that my guys were uh, really practicing safety. The Army bases seem to be a great place for uh, really upward mobility. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was wonderful. It's the one place where you could go. I mean, it was wonderful for a woman in, at the time that I went to work there, for a woman or a minority, that was the place to be, the government. I mean, I'm not saying just the army base, but the government as a whole. And um, that's where you could go places and, and become higher grades through your experience, not just you didn't have to go out and have the education. 
They also trained you. They trained you. They trained you and you got the experience and you got the training and you, you learned how to do it. And so you could advance. If you went out to private sector and were in the same situation that I was with, the, you would never have made the specialist because there would have been a requirement that you have a college degree. So, um, yeah, it was absolutely perfect, marvelous opportunity for, you know, I never would have gotten where Troy where was probably if it hadn't been for the government and the, and the Army. Humanities Week started because we would have um, Black History Week, we would have um, Cinco de Mayo, and, you know, different, different ethnic groups would have their celebrations at different times of the year. And the command decided that it might be more cost effective if we had all of those combined. And also, we would spread it over a week. And so they came up with a name, Humanities Week. And that would be a celebration of everybody. When Desert Storm happened, I was in recruiting in the San Francisco. I was in Oakland. Uh -huh. uh, my area was from um, Hayward all the way to Richmond. Uh -huh. And how was it, what was it like to recruit during wartime in, a, in, a, in this area that does uh, It's very have... difficult. Yeah. Very, very difficult. This area is, again, you know, we talked about it earlier. Right. It's not the most accepting area of the military to begin with. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the first Gulf War didn't last very long, but it was still, in this area, was a very unpopular war. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of talk of the government and the military targeting African-American communities as far as trying to get recruits. Mm -hmm. So they basically were trying to say that we were bringing the minorities in to go over there and get them killed. Right. Did you sense that, that they were I mean, you no, were the, out no, there during the recruiting. You know, um, I didn't sense that. Mm -hmm. um, really, depending on the economic times, that the recruiting in what I would say, not necessarily impoverished areas, but in uh, big cities, mm -hmm. in areas where maybe the economy isn't good. You know, if, the, if economic times are bad, recruiting is very easy. Mm -hmm. Because people will just get to the point, well, look, I'm going to have a roof over my head. I got three squares a day. Here are the benefits that I can receive out of going into the military. Is it worth it? When economic times are good, it's that much more difficult. But in this area, one of, the first, one of the things that we do is we go to the high schools. Mm -hmm. And we recruit a lot of the high schools, especially seniors. One of the first things that happened in this area was we were banned from going onto the, onto the campuses. On all the high schools? All the high schools. We even had one time, we even had helicopters that came in um, as what they call a supercargo, which means that there's also military that travels with them. And, and what they're doing is they're babysitting the helicopters because they're really very expensive. Mm -hmm. And they, they cocoon them, which means that they, it's like shrink wrapping the meat, but they shrink wrap the uh, helicopters. Mm -hmm. And what was neat about it, when the war first started, when Desert Storm first started and they were shipping all those over to overseas, they, the guys would be finishing doing it and then they would, they would take the spray paint and they'd write on the cocoon, hi mom, or, or make faces on the helicopters. In fact, when I saw that the first time, I just totally, um, I lost it. I was out there crying. So this was spray painted on these huge... On the cocoons, yeah. It would give these helicopters personalities because yeah. they had little happy faces and big eyes and, you know, hi, mom. And it, it just kind of showed you that these are kids. Yeah. They're going over there and they're going to try to, you know, fight this war for us. And, and it's just really, it's very emotional. Now, of course, we did the uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we did through Oakland Army. That was interesting, trying to run a war at the same time you're doing a drawdown for base closure. All that stuff, when it was coming back, it was a nightmare. Uh, the stuff that was being uh, returned to National Guard units and reserve units in the 12 western states, the, the address on the container had no relationship to what was inside. Sometimes you'd get a container that was just full of trash that they just wanted to get out of, the, out of Iraq or out of uh, Kuwait. So they'd just fill it with trash and put it on a ship and put somebody's address on it, off it'd go. 
or they would, they would have a vehicle and they didn't know whose it was. They didn't have any identification for it. They'd put it in a container, put an address on it, and ship it back to the States. And some poor you know, motor pool sergeant up in Idaho opens his container and he doesn't know what it is. It was ugly. But war is that way. War is anarchy. Believe it or not, when I first got there, the, the major thing that I did was I was the representative that helped organize the parade after Desert Storm. Oh, fun. That went down Broadway Street, and it ended up down at Jack London Square. And we had tanks and all kinds of military equipment set up for people to just come and see what they're really like. Mm -hmm. And they could go up and take pictures, take, you know, a lot of people were posing with the troops and we had a flyover. I think we had a B-52 flyover, you know, one of the B-52 bombers. Yeah. Lots of different aircraft, helicopters. We had tanks rolling down Broadway Street in I Oakland. I can't picture it. I'm oh, yeah. here then. <laughs> When I started working in 1968, it would take me about 15 minutes to get to the Oakland Army Base on 80. Mm -hmm. And by the time I retired 28 years later, it was taking me 30 minutes to 40 minutes because it just it just got so busy, the traffic just got worse and worse and worse. And then you said you remembered also when the... Oh, the 1989 earthquake, when the overramp oh, on Cyprus, Cyprus, when it went down, that was right in front of our building. It was the ramp that connected us to go over the bridge to go to San Francisco. And so that was down and then 80 was down. So we had to take surface streets and it took us like an hour and a half to get to work. About every nightclub, like disco dancing type of nightclub in the Oakland area mm -hmm. closed because they were having so much violence that no one was willing to even do anything. Mm -hmm. There was a club on the Army base called the Crosswinds Club. I've heard of it. On Friday nights, they would open up the Crosswinds to anybody who wanted to come on. From, uh, for the civilian world? Yeah. Well, how and did it, that work? Oh, it was a mess. <laughs> it was an absolute mess. Every car, every vehicle that came on was searched. There were times when we would come out with drug-sniffing dogs at the entrance of the Crosswinds Club was a metal detector. There were all, all kinds of things going on in that club that you would not expect to be going on on a military base. Like? Even with this careful searching? <sighs> Drugs, mm -hmm. prostitution. Wow, this was in 1992. The early 90s. Mm -hmm. yeah. There were a lot of things going on. You have to understand, that place made a lot of money. Oh, I see. That place was packed, and um, and a lot of people coming from the uh, downtown Oakland. In fact, I'm trying to remember. You know the uh, singing group in Vogue. Yeah. In Vogue used to come to that club. It just is. Uh, this is, you know, just coming to dance. Yeah. yeah. This is, you mm -hmm. know, before they hit it big. And yeah. So eventually, I, I'm trying to remember, I can't remember what actually finally stopped them from having that, but they mm -hmm. finally shut it down. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think we, uh, we never had anyone shot. I don't mm -hmm. think we ever had anybody knifed or anything like that. But, you know, you would have people beating each other up. You'd have a few fist fights and things like that. Did you get a sense of how connected the Oakland Army Base was to the broader West Oakland community? It had real significance because a lot of the people lived in West Oakland worked there. It, it affected West Oakland with economics. I mean, a lot of people lost jobs. The same as like the Naval Supply, where my dad worked. I, my, I had an aunt work there too, and you know, like when they closed down, I mean, they lost their job. I, I had friends who, I still got friends who worked at Naval Air, and when they closed down, they had 20 years there, and boom, you know, they just closed it, and they lost their job. So it affects, you know, military bases, and it's designed to do that. You know, congressmen, that's what their job is, to try to bring in 
military much money as they can to their community so that they can have full employment, of, as full of employment as they could get. If you look at powerful senators, powerful congressmen, look at their state. They got plenty of military. Huh. Did you get a clear sense as to why it was being closed? Yeah, I did. I had a real good clear sense. Um, uh, Congress made it very clear uh, that we no longer needed uh, the military infrastructure that we had. The military infrastructure was uh, far in excess of our needs. Uh, there were other means by which to fight wars. Uh, we need to get lean, mean, like a fighting machine. That meant that we could consolidate soldiers and civilians at fewer locations throughout the country. And in the process, save the American taxpayer millions, billions of dollars. And we've done that. I assume that a lot of that, or much of that decision, was based on intelligence that we had received in terms of threats around the world, the Soviet Union that had gone down or was in the process of going down, um, and that the world had changed. That was all political. That was all a, a backlash on a get-even-with-the-folks-in-California type of thing because if you look around the Bay Area, you'll see that every military base was closed. And our work in the Bay Area was moved up to the state of Washington. And our work at the Naval Air Station, Alameda, all, all of those, those ships were either moved up to Everett in Washington or down to San Diego. You know, they, they, they don't like our liberalism in the Bay Area. They wiped us out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can remember the first time that uh, Congressman Dellens came to the city, and it was at Taylor Memorial United Methodist Church, and uh, one of the things that he was saying by them downsizing and that the base would be closing, that it possibly would be um, a good opportunity for the West Oakland community to get some benefits from that. And uh, that was giving us, you know, hope that maybe some of the things that we needed as a community would be able to, we would be able to get. And maybe some of the people who had lost businesses or that type of thing may would be able to uh, have, you know, be, get in some of the buildings if there were buildings left or, you know, just take a part in it and be able to, to benefit from it's no, no longer existing as an army base because that whole process bogged down and it was taking forever to actually transfer the bases to new owners, particularly the local governments. There was a lot of internal resistance uh, in the services. The services are considered the owners of the bases and they're the ones who actually uh, physically closed them down. Well, there was a lot of resistance to turning it over to the local governments. The services really wanted to just sell the basis, you know, to the highest bidder. And the thought was, we can de defray some of our, our cost with uh, cleanup and our other cost from closing these bases and moving uh, the operations to other bases with this money. Because, you know, some of these, I mean, how valuable is Treasure Island? How, va how valuable is the Oakland Army basics? But the Clinton administration had the policy that you know, this is a huge blow to the communities. So if we can give them this land, uh, it'll help defray the, the blow and, and, and replace the jobs. Was that a good idea? I don't know. The local governments added more muddle to the process and they didn't really have the, the resources to come in and do what was necessary. Most of them ended up uh, bringing in developers. But they, the local governments very much wanted that because they, they wanted to be in control and they wanted to make this an asset to their, a revenue enhancing asset to the local government. But uh, I think that happened, it happened rather rarely. I think generally the conversion of the bases was, was pretty disappointing. 
The Oakland Army Base is located in uh, an area uh, known as West Oakland. It is located next to the Port of Oakland. There is a lot of community, uh, both support and resentment of the Port of Oakland. The support is, of course, it's jobs. How many jobs go to local West Oakland residents? There's a debate about that. What are the impacts of the Port of Oakland? Trucks, air quality, um, and certainly uh, an industrial look and feel to the area. The Oakland Army Base uh, property, again, 425 acres, located in some of the most prime locations of any you know, portion of Oakland or, frankly, any wa um, water uh, next to a water city, offered um, an opportunity to really look at what the city could do in terms of a major economic development uh, project. However, it was also a location that seemed that the Western community felt that it was their opportunity to develop a beneficial project for their community. So there was a lot of need to take time to work through the process, work through the issues, a lot of time to work through what are the real um, feasible projects that could be put on that property. There were constraints about the site in terms of infrastructure, in terms of port uses and nearby port uses. So there were quite a bit of uh, back and forth about what we could do with the property, what we couldn't do. And then in that case, it created a lot of suspicion. One other thing that I was really very sad about when we, we it was the process is so big and so uh, it's hard to understand the maneuvering of how that you have to transfer and how that you have to process it. And um, like we wanted to at least say, keep the administration building on, on the base as a historical site and that possibly that West Oakland uh, organizations could share in that, that particular building and um, they would maybe get offices and different organizations, I, I suppose you naturally would have to have some kind of qualification and some kind of, say, show work ethics or whatever it is that you've done really for the West Oakland community. But uh, the next thing we knew, it was torn down. The only one was torn down. It was yeah. torn down, you know. And then they discovered, what was it? The tar pit. That's what I call it. On the... Southwest corner of Building One. All, they, when they when they cleared the asphalt off the parking lot, they found this black, gooey, bubbly stuff. Nobody could explain it. Nobody knew what it was or where it had come from. So they tore the building down and they fenced off the air. I don't know if they've ever fixed it or what. I think Oakland Army Base is. Uh just had quite a history from the time that, that it came into being right after Pearl Harbor, played a big role as, as the embarkation port, something that we were quite quite proud of, the role that it played not only in World War II, uh, but in Korea as well as Vietnam. And um, in spite of uh, local criticisms, I think history will show that it was uh, quite an important place and the people who worked there played quite an important role in some significant events. Uh, in American history. So I'm very happy to have worked there and to have been a part of it. And I'm very proud to have worked with the people that, that worked there during the time that, that I was there. So they were really good people. All right, that's where we're going to leave things for this episode. Since these interviews were recorded back in 2007 and 2008, there's been a lot of controversy about the base redevelopment, and that battle is still playing out in the courts. The base site is now what's called a logistics cluster, which is essentially an extension of the Port of Oakland. So what you see out here is mostly giant warehouses, some of them still under construction, shipping facilities, a constant stream of semi-trucks, there are a few old army buildings left, but not many. And that controversy that I mentioned earlier has to do with plans to build a coal terminal here, which a lot of people aren't happy about. The outcome of that fight is still undetermined, 
So it's kind of outside of my purview since it's not history yet. But I hope you enjoyed today's show. Stay tuned for the credits where I'll give the names of everyone you just heard. But for now, I just want to once again encourage you to come out and take a look at this part of Oakland sometime, if you haven't already. Even though the army base was only around for about half a century, and the memory is already starting to fade, for thousands and thousands of people, including my grandparents, this was once a place to live and work and occasionally fight and dance and (laughs) steal whiskey and fish and bowl and, of course, sing songs to lift the spirits in the face of war and an uncertain future. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. First, I need to thank everybody at UC Berkeley's Oral History Center who was involved with this project, especially Martin Meeker, David Dunham, Vic Geraci, Lisa Rubens, Anne Lage, Robin Lee, Jess Regelhaupt, and Julie Allen. And here are the names of the people you just heard in this episode. I'll include a link on my website, eastbayyesterday.com, to additional biographic information about them if you want to know more. Eleanor Bollinger, Mark Braley, George Bolton, George Cobbs, Gordon Coleman, Steve Darrow, Grant Davis, George Gabler, Eliza Gallo, Thomas Galvin, Margaret Gordon, Fred Gowan, Jim Johnson, Robert Lippincott, Janice McDonald, Rose Medina, Mary Myers, Monson Natoto, Robert Nordham, Leo Robinson, Stan Rudney, Leo Sandal, Sidney Santos, Robert Taylor, Devetto Thibault, Michael Thomas, Queen Thurston, and Cleophas Williams. Also, big shout out to Woodruff Minor, whose architectural report about the base I will also link to on my site. Okay, huge thanks to all of you supporting this show on Patreon. I literally couldn't do it without you. If you want to support East Bay Yesterday, you can find the donate link in the upper right-hand corner of eastbayyesterday.com. And while you're there, please don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, please uh, share it on one of those social networks or, you know, just tell your friends about it or email somebody whatever. Oh, and I've got another live Q&A coming up. This one is about the oyster history of the Bay Area. You can tune in live on May 29th, thanks to Creative Mornings Oakland, who are hosting this. You can find out all the info about that on my site or on my social. And finally, music for this episode came from the Andrews Sisters and Vogue and the U.S. Marine Band. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of East Bay Yesterday.